Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name's Alex Gruskin. Joining me on this podcast, as always, my doubles partner, partner in crime, and future CAA talent agent, Maxwell LeBauer-Rothman. Maxie, hey, great shot. God, please don't ever let me be a talent agent. I'll hate my life. (laughs) Yeah, I might be giving you a little bit too much credit, but the reason I call you a future talent agent is because you recently took part in an event on the University of Michigan campus called Who Can Relate? Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty special event. Basically, this past week, we had a week-long worth of events, um, basically ranged from physical and mental well-being, uh, had different speakers come in, such as Glenn Close, Brandon Marshall, his wife, Mishi, um, and then it culminated in a concert with Logic that all revolved around mental health, um, had some cool video guest uh, appearances as well from Bill Clinton and and just a few other notable celebrities. And uh, it, it was really cool just to have a week where, you know, this kind of conversation wasn't stigmatized. It, it really was the theme of the entire week. And any time we had a conversation around it, it just felt normal. Uh, it, was, it was pretty cool to have everyone come together around this cause. You know, I think you're being a bit too modest. I know you hosted a panel that I was fortunate enough to attend with Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow, you know, former NFL player Brandon Marshall. You had actress Glenn Close, a lot of experts in mental health as well. An excellent panel, you know, just talking about going through mental health issues and how there's a public stigma against that term and why that people need to be upfront about what they're feeling and to give the topic of mental health a much more positive connotation. And as you mentioned, Logic, a a musician, very popular amongst people our age. He's a rapper. He put on a concert Friday night. I know you were able to go on the stage and give him some love during the event. So shout out to us. Hopefully you were wearing your Cracked Rackets shirt. Oh, of course. It was underneath all the other (laughs) apparel. Gave it a little flash. Absolutely. I like it a lot, and I'm very happy to have a podcast co-host who takes part in events such as that. Obviously, the reason we bring this up is we haven't been able to record as frequently as we would have liked. There's been a lot of tennis since the last time you and I had a recording session. Acapulco and then, of course, Indian Wells in Miami, those two Masters events. The North American Hardcore Spring at the end of winter or beginning of spring, whatever you want to call you know, this season. So a lot of tennis to talk about. A little bit of housekeeping before we begin, and we'll try and do this as quickly as possible. If you haven't yet, go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com. We've got a ton of great articles focused on the college tennis season. There have been a lot of upsets in college tennis. You have Wake Forest going down a couple of times in the past week. You know, Michigan-Ohio State playing recently. Ohio State taking that W. UNC-Wake Forest. That's a match. Wake Forest won 4-3. A lot of good tennis. You know, we have a lot of people recapping those events in further detail on our website, so go check those out. If you are anxious for your Miami Open and Indian Wells coverage now, there are recaps of those events on our website. You know, our usual suspect of writers, Teddy Brodsky, Parker Thienemann, Rob Thomas, the whole crew gave their takes and we'll be giving our takes in this podcast as well. But but be sure to go check out their work on the website. Of course, we've also got the Cracked Interviews podcast, our other Cracked Rackets podcast series. We've had a bunch of great interviews recently. Cam Norrie, Caroline Dalahide, both of those are already released and we recently recorded two episodes with J.C. Aragoni and Tim Smichek. You know, I'm biased. I think every episode I do is the best one we've recorded yet, but these two are really fun, so be on the lookout for those. I heard uh, 
was a little SIGAP story with Cam Norian. I know that's your uh, <laughs> your fraternity. That's true. We were actually at the same party. He was here on his recruiting visit because, fun fact from the podcast, but he was once committed to the University of Michigan. And yeah. once their coach, Bruce Burke, left, he decommitted, ended up going to TCU. But on his recruiting visit, he was visiting a senior on the Michigan team who happened to be a member of SIGAP. And that was my freshman year in college, so we were at the same event. Pretty funny. We have, you know, we talked about the jokes, if he enjoyed his time here, all of that stuff. So be sure to go check that out. Yeah, also uh, a few other articles that were fun. There's some cool debates going on, such as, you know, whether tennis balls are yellow or green. They're definitely yellow. Federer said they're yellow. Okay, we. I'm not going to disagree with you because the majority <clears throat> of tennis balls are yellow, but tell me you haven't seen a green tennis ball. Because if you play... Sure. Okay, sure, but if you're thinking of a stereotypical tennis ball, it's yellow. Okay, so indoor tennis in Michigan, the balls get very cold. And I think maybe that's why they turn even more green. But sometimes you walk into our bubbles and it's very very imprecise. (laughs) But this idea that I would go into the bubble, which is this secluded by, you know, big air tent area. I think people know what the bubble is. The best work I ever did was on court 14, the end of the bubble, (laughs) right by the heater. You're just grinding away in this freezing cold bubble. But that's a tangent for another time. The point is the balls would turn green after a while because they'd just be so cold and you know heavy and so i think that's a thing i think there are green tennis balls but yes the majority are yellow i i agree and you know we'll we'll continue this conversation later <laughs> one other thing we <laughs> want to mention over chat topic. exactly so one other thing that we want to bring up before we hop into acapulco you know we've asked you guys to comment like subscribe to our our podcast and, and we ask get... you to do it again now please please five star reviews only only um <laughs> But yeah, so you know, we've obviously asked you guys to do this, and we actually recently got a comment from uh, a former ump on the iTunes feed, and was talking about Del Rey and how we, you know, we talked about whether there was a Porsche sponsorship with Del Rey and whatnot, and so he said that the Porsche dealership is actually one of the big sponsors for the tournament. A random selection of fans are chosen to sit in the car and watch and play, which is pretty cool in my opinion. Yeah, we um, talked about how there's the Porsche at the side of the car, or. Yeah, we talked about last podcast how there is a Porsche on the side of the court, and, you know, it's funky, but you think it's cool to sit in it? It'd be scary. It It's cool, but also I was talking about how Opelka, it's dumb Isner, that yeah, people can literally drill a $150,000 car. But what he did say also is that there's usually a single stick or two underneath the side of the car because... Of course, otherwise the balls would get stuck underneath the car because Porsches do sit kind of low to the ground. Yeah, he also mentions how Delray Beach is an artistic community, and on the tournament grounds there are one or two artist-rendered painted Porsches parked near the food quarter entrance. So it's a theme of the event, and obviously it increases our understanding. But like you mentioned, these are the type of comments we really appreciate. And the yeah, point of this helps com- us learn a little more. Absolutely, and the point of this podcast is to expand the tennis conversation. So we love having that with any listener. Thank you for commenting former ump you know my name's alex this is max we love real names as well but from now on former ump you're a go-to guy on these sponsorships so thank you for that but okay as you mentioned a lot of tennis to catch up on before we get into that i just want to give a little sneak peek of what we'll be talking about because as you mentioned this will be a three-part pod we'll do acapulco indian wells and of course miami Uh, You know, as for the release schedules, I'm not exactly sure, but, you know, we're going to release them in that order, you know, successive by when they happened. But on our last podcast, Max, you and I had harsh words for two of the big winners from these three events, those being Borna Chorich and John Isner. And so, Fligner, if you could, cue the sad violins. John, Borna, 
We're really sorry about what we said on the last podcast. I'm still not that sorry about John, but <laughs> but Borna, I'm very sorry. You know, Borna, we should have been aware that you were training, and you know, you're a young player, and you know, we tend to overlook you just because you take a little bit of absence from the game, and we shouldn't be doing that. We need to, you know, not be giving such hot takes. We need to have a little bit more perspective. You know, I agree with you on the Isner stuff. We'll get into Miami later. No, but, no, I'm kidding. All I, right, that's enough of the violin. I love Isner. But yeah, great. so, you know, we do apologize for those hot takes, and we'll get into why they were so successful this month. But let's start with a big next-gen event, and that's the Acapulco 500. You know, this was held at the beginning of March, right before Indian Wells. And, you know, there is something to be said about playing an event of that magnitude right before a Masters event. But, you know, these first two podcasts, the theme will be it's the Juan Martin Del Potro show because he, you know, steamrolled through these two draws. And so we're going to cover these events in the order that they happened. Obviously, that means we're starting with the Acapulco ATP 500. This is an event that featured a ton of our favorite next gen American players and and some non-American next-gen players as well. We'll get into, you know, the main draw, but because we love our next-gen Americans so much, we want to start with some of their results in the final round of qualifying. We had a New York Open first-round rematch. Ernesto Escobedo defeats Mackenzie McDonald 7-5-7-6. You know, that's the type of result I love to see, and maybe Ernesto just has something on Mackie because that's two in a row. Yep. And another final round qualifying fun one, Cam Nori and Dennis Kudla. Nori takes out Kudla 6-3-6-3. You know, Kudla had been another college player. Braden Schnur in the first round of qualifying. Good to see these college players and young Americans progressing. And, you know, in terms of college, Nori, Schnur, both college guys. Yeah, I mean, I will say back to the Ernesto Mackey. I do think Ernesto's game matches up pretty well for Mackey. And also Ernesto has this trend kind of of taking down and having better head-to-head results with a lot of these next-gen American guys. I agree with you, and, you know, we could Sucks talk about it doesn't it. translate into, you know, <laughs> yeah. more wins on, on the ATV tour. I agree with you, and I could talk about these results forever, but there are so many main draw matches to cover, yeah. so let's just get right get to, to it. Absolutely. You know, before we do that, we have to give our patented, hey, great shot to the American winners in Acapulco. That's Jared Donaldson, Ryan Harrison, and Ernesto Escobedo. Fliegner, cue the applause. So let's start with that last guy I mentioned. Ernesto Escobedo in the first round takes out number four seed Jack Sox, 7-5-7-6. You know, this is a match we watched the highlights of together, and we had a lot of similar thoughts, so I'm going to give you the floor first. I mean... (laughs) I'm so happy. It it was such a (laughs) weird match because I... To me, they are pretty similar players in that they both hit big forehands. They're not the best movers on court. Their backhands are pretty solid and they have good serves um so i expected it to be tight but this really is a match that based on experience sock should never lose and he looked terrible he looked lethargic is the word i would care he hit drop shots all over the place which you know makes sense at some in some regards because you know escobedo is not super fast but it was just weird I, i expected to see a little more variety a little more just energy and enthusiasm out of him and it wasn't there Energy is a great word to use. I will get back to that point. One thing you also said, in terms of best movers, I think Sock is a really, you know, really moves well on well, the court. Well, he's athletic. Okay. I, I think there's a difference between being a great mover and being athletic. So you I agree. Get... His footwork's not good. No. No, his footwork isn't great, but he is athletic in the way he moves. And so, you know, sometimes he slides the explosive, ball well maybe. and he's explosive. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> he's explosive. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I shouldn't be cutting you off. I, yeah, I agree with you. Laterally, I think he's very impressive. I also think he tries to put himself in position to show off his athleticism. So, for instance, he may take only a half step after the return so he can track down the forehand and give it a big slide and cut the ball. Yeah. I will say, you know, in terms of energy. I do the energy, same thing sometimes, yeah. you know. Well, I have compared you to Jack Sock on many occasions. Yeah. But in terms of the energy, Sock was lethargic. He didn't look invested in half of Ernesto's serving games. And Sock plays this careless style of tennis where he thinks he's talented enough, especially against another young American who, in Sock's mind, he has to think, you know, I've won a Masters event. I have the mental edge over Ernesto. That he can just lollygag through the match, and you saw it. He wasn't necessarily trying on a lot of Ernesto's serving games. He wasn't putting forth full effort in his own serving games. You know, he mixed in so many drop shots, and like you said, it did work. And in terms of break points, Escobedo goes one of one, Sock goes zero of one in this matches. So it's not as though there were a lot of chances to break. But still, Sock, as someone who's such a good doubles player, wins the doubles event in this. He has to return the ball better against Ernesto. Yeah, and I mean Ernesto won eighty six percent of his first serve points, Sock only winning 72%, but really, I mean, like Both I was elite saying... elite numbers. Yeah, of course. And and this is what I was saying before, that technically, you know, this is a match that should be close because of their game styles, but this is a match that should be close because of their game styles, and it was. If you look at the stats, it it is pretty even, except that Escobedo got one break and Sock didn't. So this brings me back to a fun fact I have from this match, and just to reinforce my point earlier that Sock wasn't necessarily giving full effort during Escobedo's serving games. So Escobedo served 12 times during this match, and he lost a total of 15 points on serve. 15! And so you look at the second serve points one. Yes, Sock won 63% of his, but Escobedo won 69% of his second serve points, and when you pair that with an 86% first serve points one, it, it's really hard to lose a match like that, and you know, Sock, you look at the patterns from this match. Anytime Ernesto would get a ball into the Sock backhand, Ernesto could at the very least get the point back to neutral. And unless Sock hit the big serve, you know, hit the big forehand to follow it up or sometimes sneak forward and cut off a volley, he didn't have a way of playing easy offense against Ernesto. And that's a testament to Ernesto putting pressure on him. Absolutely. And Ernesto's forehand was massive in this match and he used it to the best of his ability. That inside in forehand on match point. Huge. Absolutely. And, and that's how he could that's how he was able to separate himself here. You know, we should move on, but one other development that was interesting from this match. Escobedo's ability to shorten his backhand backswing on the return and kind of go yeah, inside I, in on that deuce. You know, we gave Tiafo credit for that shot in Delray. I think Escobedo hit it well in this. He did, absolutely. But look, you know, credit to Escobedo. He played well, deserved that win. Hopefully Sock shows a little more energy in the next couple tournaments. But on to our next match. We have Denis Shapovalov versus Kenny Shikori taking him down 6-7, 6-3, This was an interesting match. I watched most of this one live and first of all i think this is a great matchup for shapovalov i think interesting explain that yeah i think that k doesn't do enough from the ground to really hurt shapovalov and i love how shapovalov has his wide forehand angle and when he can use that with a guy like k who's not going to hurt him too much from the baseline he moves in a little bit and you'll notice that this match really did come down to the baseline when they're both serving under 50% on their first serve. You know that they're getting into a lot of long rallies, and clearly this match went Shapovalov's way, and he was stronger on the baseline. 
Well, you know what I was thinking of? What I, third title I was going to give you at the beginning of this podcast? I wanted to say you were the Jeff Van Gundy to my Mark Jackson because, <laughs> you know, we don't argue often, but when we do, it's very heated. And so I'm very happy. This may be our one disagreement from this three-week span of events because I don't know how you can say Nishikori doesn't penetrate with his ground strokes. When you think of him, you think of a quick, explosive player whose ground strokes explode off the racket. His forehand whips with so much spin and... See, you know, in terms but the of problem RP. is the problem is when you talk about explosive shots today, I think of Delpo and Escobedo. Fritz and Escobedo, <laughs> guys with really big forehands. And so there's a new tier of explosivity. Is that a word? Mm, I think we've come back to that from before. We're gonna go with it for the sake we're gonna, of this. We're time. gonna use it. It's like bass ackwards from Lisa right. Stone. <laughs> We're going to trademark that word. Yeah, exactly. But so, uh, sorry to cut you off. You may have been in the middle of a point. I disagree with you because I think Nishikori at full health does move well enough to side but to is side. But full health? Always. Well, what point you made is I think what you saw to make you think he may not be is Shapovalov's ability to slide him out wide, especially on the ad side. I love his ability to hit the lefty slice out wide. Absolutely. It's one of his stretch. best shots. And he follows it in. He does. It, and he's good at the net as one well. One of my favorite combos of any of the next-gen players has to be that slider out wide plus following it in. But look, I, I think there is something to say about Nishikori's recent ATP performance. It's not been where it's been in the past. He had... 10 break points in this match, converted one of them. Huge problem here. If you look at the last few sets, 6-3-6-1, clearly there was something off. With all those break point chances, he clearly lost a little confidence and towards that third set, just, it kind of went Shapovalov's way. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, again, we mentioned the score, 6-7-6-3-6-1. In terms of break points, Shapovalov, 5 of 9. As you mentioned, Nishikori, 1 of 10. You'd think that means they were both in each other's serving games, but you look at the total points won, Shapovalov 105, Kei Nishikori 89. Those second and third sets were blowouts. And as you mentioned, I think that's a testament to Nishikori just not really having his legs quite under him yet. That ability to play deep into a three-set match just isn't quite there. And credit to Shapovalov for you know, beating a guy who still, even at this form, won the Dallas Challenger top 75 level player at the least. Absolutely. And hopefully Nishikori gets back in his grind. He's been... You know, a little off for the last couple of weeks, but maybe we'll see him step it up in, in the near future. But on to another lefty that has been making his way slowly on. And one quick point I want to make before we move on. In a lot of these tournaments, you and I are going to do deep dives of first-round matches because there are a lot of young next-gen players in these matches, and we want to talk about what we're seeing. At the end of this podcast, we're actually going to break down the next-gen guys into tiers. So, you know, there is a theme to this podcast, of course, and that's why we're talking about them. So, you know, we will. A lot of first round matches. We hope you stick around. If you want to move on to the semifinals, of course, feel free to do that because we'll get there. But okay, let's move on to the third of our four first round matches we're going to talk about. This is a Crack Interviews guest, Cam Nori. You know, he fell to Dominic Team, the number three seed in this event, 6 3, 5 7, 7 5. Another guy who's been a little off in, in the last couple of weeks. I just think Team's exhausted. I think everything's starting Isn't to catch up. Isn't everyone exhausted? Yeah, I mean, but everyone's... two years he's played the most events on tour and just this grind week to week. How many times do we see Team's name in February come up? At least three, right? It's and true. now he's playing another event on top of, you know, two Masters. Bef- you know, he's playing the event the week before those events. It's a lot of tennis, a lot of travel on the body. And, yeah, it's storming because the gods are saying, what is he doing? Yeah, and sorry to any of you listening out there. If you catch a little thunder in the background, that's, uh, that's again, the gods being angry at 
Dominic for, for April showers. Bring May flowers. There it is. <laughs> but anyways, Dominic TM took Cam Nori down in this match. Six three five seven seven five. Really good tennis, to be honest. We also watched this match together. Um, you know, Cam had his opportunities, but there were a few stats that really do show where the separation was. If you look at TM's first serve points one, eighty four percent to Cam Nori's sixty eight percent. Also, break points. TM had eleven break point opportunities versus Nori's three. Obviously. You know, is is still a close match, but having that many break one opportunities shows that he was the one who was more dominant in it and ultimately was able to pull it out. Well, it's particularly interesting because Dominic team only made 48% of his first serves, yet he's converting 84% 4%. of those points. That's a very, very strong conversion margin, and yeah. it shows if he could get Cam Nori on the defensive, it was very hard for match. Cam to bring the point back to neutral. You know, I'm sorry to call you out on this so publicly, but I feel like... I have to be the Cam Nori defender because you seem a little skeptical of his upside. I think my main thing with Cam is that I don't necessarily see his forehand as a weapon, which I think he would and many other people who would watch his tennis would say is his biggest weapon. Obviously, being a lefty provides himself an opportunity against a lot of right-handed players. I think his backhand is a little funky. I think it's too big of a backswing. I know you disagree with me on that. But I, I do see a lack of a real weapon in him. So I disagree with you, as you mentioned. Yeah. And the reason I do is because you watched this match, and I thought the combo that worked best for Nori was he when he was going backhand cross-court to the team forehand. And the reason I say this, before you say anything and jump on me, is that I think team in particular, because he plays so far behind the baseline when he's playing defense, when you give him a backhand that floats, and the Nori forehand, because his backswing is so big, can be susceptible to floating you give team that type of time on a backhand it's like clay he's hitting it huge down the line or he's ripping the angle cross court and as we mentioned when he could get nori stretched and when team could play aggressive tennis cam had a lot of trouble there and so you know that's kind of why i thought team won the matches just in the end he was able to play more aggressive tennis than nori but for nori what he was able to do because in my opinion his backhand backswing is kind of short and he's just able to control the pace and take it earlier you know not have to be so far behind the baseline and take time away from team which you have to do just because of how hard team hits his ground strokes i mean maybe there's something weird about his backhand stroke that makes it seem short to you, but I don't feel like it's that short of a backstroke. I feel like he just kind of drives through it. It's very compact. (laughs) Maybe not short, but what about compact? Maybe maybe that's the right way. It's it's right from hip to, you know, shoulder. I guess. I guess my main concern is if I get a guy with a big forehand who can hit down the line like Escobedo does, and he's able to run around that sitter lefty forehand, he's in trouble. Well, I think the other thing is he's more comfortable hitting the forehand on the run because like any person it's a forehand on the run it just seems like that's the more comfortable shot to hit and so allowing team to you know play the line but it's to the nori forehand you can hit a decent forehand cross court on the run much more so in my opinion than the ability to hit a backhand cross court on the run so you know playing to that pattern gave nori that type of flexibility and i thought he did well i thought he did a good job of attacking team you know taking advantage of those big backswings trying to move forward well i think he has top 75 upside for sure and you know i'm happy to see a former college tennis player like nori have success that's fair i i would agree on the top 75 potential i don't know how much farther it's gonna get but we'll see 
Okay, well, let's talk about another college tennis player, and this will be our last first-round match that we break down. Number two seed Alex Vera beats another Cracked Interviews guest and former UCLA tennis player Mackenzie McDonald, 6-3-7-5. Mackenzie's your guy, Max, so what'd you think? So this is actually another match where I was pleasantly surprised with the score. I thought this was a match where Zverev really was just going to dominate. I think Mackenzie, so far in his... ATP career has impressed me with the way he's been able to hang with the big dogs. He doesn't have the biggest game, and he moves great, he plays smart tennis, but to me, with a guy like Zverev, who has really solid ground strokes and hits a big ball, I thought he was going to push him off the court. How many times have we talked about how well Mackenzie McDonald moves? And for oh, it's Zverev, fantastic. Yeah, exactly. And for Zverev to be able to play as aggressively as he did is a testament to his development and you know his ability to convert his ground strokes into weapons. Yeah, and it is pretty clear where the differentiation was in this match. Zverev very clearly took advantage of Mackie's second serve. Mackie only won 42% of his second serve. Zverev... So, sorry, before you go on, because I want to talk about that real quick, because I think that stat is very indicative of the problem when you're talking about Mackenzie McDonald's upside. You know, given the weapons he has, given his speed, his ability to play aggressively and move forward, take balls on the rise and cut off angles, I think he can be an ATP top 50 player, a consistent threat, almost like a Steve Johnson. Not that they play the same, but in terms of their career trajectory, you know, living in that range of 50 to 30. I mean, I, I think, I think Mackie needs to learn to become a different variation of like a Kanishi Corey. But even beyond that, going back to what you mentioned about the second serve percentage, the fact that McKenzie's only able to win 42% exposes you know, his physical upside. He is not the biggest player, and he's not going to be able to rip second serves. So serving 52% on first serves is not going to cut it, Never. even when you're winning 75% of your first serve points, because he just doesn't have a second serve that's going to allow him. You know, He's always going to be under attack on second serve points. Absolutely, and look, Zverev also had 10 break point opportunities to Mackey's one. He's in those games. Clearly just a match where Zverev, you know, even though he didn't dominate as far as the score, he, he dominated the points and the service games that Mackey had. Yeah, and, you know, Zverev is a top 10 player, so we need to give him credit. Mackey's going up against the best, but you're projecting his outlook. You know, Mackey did a lot of things well in this match, and... You know, the second serve is always going to be an issue, so it's just a matter of how much can he improve that over the next bit of time. But okay, enough with the first-round breakdowns. Let's do a few other notable results. I want to talk about, you know, Harrison taking out John Isner, 6-3-7-6. It's interesting because Ryan Harrison had lost to Opelka. I think he lost to Karlovich. Yeah, he broke his He finally uh, beats a big guy. So good for him and, you know, for Isner. Obviously, he had success in Miami, but... You know, debating whether this year has been successful or not. You look before that he had what two wins going into Miami. Yeah, just, something like that. Yeah, it's just uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll save that debate for later. Uh, in terms of the next gen guy, you had Jared Donaldson taking out Basilashvili, six two three two retired. Great start for Donaldson. We'll talk about more. You had Our, Chung taking out D Young. A great result for Donaldson, and we'll talk about him more later on. Also had another. Next-gen win from Hyung Chung against Donald Young. Nice 7-6-6-1 win. And uh, an unfortunate next-gen loss from Andre Rublev to David Ferrer, 6-4-6-3. But still a good showing. And one more I want to mention. Tanasi Kokonakis takes out another next-gen or Alexander Sasha Bublik, 6-4-6-3. Again, we'll talk about Kokonakis and his Federer match later on when we do Miami. But 
it takes a result like this to get your ATP confidence to say, I can play at this level and win. And, you know, I'm sure in Kokonakis's mind, yes, he's very confident, but a result like this has to help going into the Masters. Last result I want to mention, Sam Query loses in the first round of Matthew Ebden, who I believe took out Tiafo in the Australian Open first round. So Ebden's a relevant name. You know, Query loses that match 6-3-1-6-7-6. Maybe a little bit of a New York Open hangover in that one, but not the results you want to see from Isner and Query heading into the big North American hardcourt swing. Not at all, but... Let's you're get... tired of the first round, that's why you're yawning. I am. Was a little yawn, the rain in the back is making me tired. All right, well, a little energy. Let's do this a, thing. a long weekend. But back to a next-gen matchup, which disappointed me greatly. Hyun Chung destroyed Ernesto, 6-3-6-1. I mean, I don't know if you watched any of this, but this was a classic example of Chung's game at its finest, taking the ball early, moving around Ernesto. Ernesto wasn't able to really utilize that forehand weapon because Chung was taking the ball so early. It really was just domination. When you talk about that first-round match, Escobedo only loses 15 total points on right. serve. In this match, like you said, first serve percentage, 43%. He's only winning you know, 47% of his first serve points, actually doing better on the second serve with 52%, but then also just no break point opportunities. Chung is just too good at holding that baseline, too good at moving Ernesto from side to side, and Ernesto didn't have a chance to play offense, and that's a credit to Chung. Yeah, on your point, just on Ernesto having such a dominant first-round match, I forget who I was talking to, but they were saying they would much rather have had a three-set grind going into a tough match the next day versus a match where you actually had a lot of ease during those points. Do How much of a factor is that in tournaments like this or for a match like this against a guy like Chung who's been playing well recently? I think in Ernesto's case... He beat McDonald in the final round of qualifying. He beat Sock in the first round. Those are two highly emotional wins because, of course, you're playing American tennis players, guys you know and train with, and, or in Sock's case, you're playing the yeah. number one American. So I'm sure mentally he is fatigued. But in terms of the toughness of you know his opponent, Chung plays very differently than Jack Sock, and he went from a match of gimmicks and drop shots to a match of I'm moving you side to side at the baseline. You know, good luck getting a ball by me. And so, yes, that is an adjustment. Again, it's hard to say Ernesto did anything that poorly. Chung's just a freaking animal. He is, and he's been proving it with his results recently. Yeah, his foot looks fine. <laughs> he, oh, there's nothing wrong with that foot. You talk about this, he serves 64% on his first serve, wins 73% of those points. Also, Escobedo, with a low first serve percentage, 43% and converting 47 We've talked about how he needs that first serve to be successful. How about this? On top of the 73% of first serve points won, Chung wins 76% of his second serve points. Look, this is a love fest for Hyun Chung. You and I are both so high on his upside and again we'll save that for the changeover chat so you got to stick around but yeah the guy's a beast and so he's the exact type of player that Ernesto just isn't his weapons aren't refined enough to beat a guy that consistent yeah no I, I hear you but on to another match where there was just absolute domination from Dominic TM taking down Denis Shapovalov 6-2-6-3 this okay is... I want to stop you right there because I have a question for you I'm sorry you watch Denis Shapovalov's game. Yes, he's a lefty, but the one-handed backhand, the attacking style of tennis. Dominic Team also plays an attacking style of tennis, but it's very different. It's baseline oriented, but you know the thing that comes to mind is both got one hand. Or both these guys, but the thing that comes to mind is both of these guys have one-handed backhands. What do you think of comparing their two styles of play? 
Well, I think first and foremost, Shapovalov is more athletic. The way, really? Absolutely. I, I would argue that mm. the way that Shapovalov moves on the court and the way he hits his forehand, he is one of the more athletic guys oh, on tour. Oh, you're crazy. Have you seen team move on clay? Guy's a monster. Just gets to everything. Yeah, but have you seen Shapovalov play on clay? He moves beautifully. I have not seen Shapovalov play on clay. I mean, I've seen him play challenger events on clay, but I look forward to this ATP season. I don't have more athletic. Sorry, go on. I go don't think I think TM is a he's again, this is an example we were just talking about how a guy like Sock, athletic, doesn't have the best footwork. I think it's the opposite with TM. I think he's got great footwork. I think he moves beautifully, but I don't see him as an athletic guy. I don't think you can hit ground strokes as explosively as he does without having some sort of athleticism naturally. Just the torque he's able to generate and put on the ball. And you talk about a guy like Shapovalov, a lefty, which should match up well with the team one-hander, able to hit that slider out wide and get teams stretched on the backhand. Yet team is sitting, you know, six feet behind the baseline, just loading up on that backswing and getting ready to, you know, pound winners by Shapovalov. Well, look, TM also just played a lefty in the round before. Excellent point. With against against Cam and I think he probably got a little bit used to that lefty forehand spin. Also in this match, team 75% of his first serves go in. He's winning Jeez. 85% of those first serve points. You know, maybe the Shapovalov one-hander was having trouble. I think team was just able to jam him well and you know, such heavy spin to a young player like Shapovalov's one-handed backhand, even when they're, you know, it's forehand to backhand in this case, it's tough for Shapovalov to handle. And that's why I'm a bit hesitant about his, you know, prospects for clay season. And it'll be interesting to watch moving forward. Absolutely. You know, I, I, you also got to give credit to Tim's return game here. He clearly was returning well with, with Shapovalov only winning 53% of his first serves and TM having 11 breakpoint opportunities. Got to give credit to him. He was returning. Well. Also, Shapovalov, no breakpoint opportunities. Yeah, that's sad. You know, in an ATP match, you hate to see that unless it's against an Isner or an Opelka or a Karlovich. All right, you got any other thoughts on this match? No, I think we can just talk about a few other notable results before the quarterfinals. We had Donaldson taking down Matthew Ebden, 6-3-6-1. Good to see a next-gen player finally conquer the Ebden challenge. Absolutely. And we had Ryan Harrison taking down recent hotshot Diego Schwartzman, 6-3-5-7-6-4. Hotshot Diego Schwartzman. Interesting. Yeah, he's been playing well. He broke hey. the top 20 for the first time in his career. Great shot. Absolutely. Hey, great shot. <laughs> and then we had Delpo <laughs> taking down... David Ferrer, 6-4-4-6-6-3, which is actually a great match. If you have time to go watch highlights of that, some pretty good quality tennis there. Absolutely. You know, in terms of the Ryan Harrison win, we've talked about this before. Is he making a leap? Is he not making a leap? Making the quarterfinals of an ATP 500 like Acapulco doesn't qualify me for a leap. It's a very good result, and it's good to see him beat a player like Schwartzman, but Schwartzman doesn't have a lot of weapons, and that's just a grind, and I like Harrison in those yeah, matchups. Yeah, I'm with you on this. I, I still don't think Harrison's made a leap. Until he does something a little bit further, beats some other top guys, I'm not going to say it's a leap. How about this? The next After his next ATP title win, we will include him in every breakdown. Henceforward. Fair enough. Incentive for you, Ryan Harrison. Okay, let's move on to our quarter. (laughs) If that's any incentive, man, (laughs) now's the time. Absolutely. Let's move on to our quarterfinals. A guy we have surprisingly not talked a lot about yet, but, you know, this is his first really notable win of the tournament. Jared Donaldson takes out Feliciano Lopez, 6-3-6-1. You're going to give him a notable win with Feliciano? I mean, Tell me why I shouldn't. The the score, sure, but I don't know. Feliciano hasn't been... Perennially top 30. Yeah. 
I That's mean, fair. So again, we'll talk about these tiers later, but in terms of dividing these next gen prospects, I think only three of them are really capable of competing week in, week out on the ATP tour, getting wins over top thirty players like Lopez, like Ebdin, you know, Tiafo's case, like Del Potro. And a win like this over an experienced veteran, a guy who's also had a ton of great doubles results, is indicative of Donaldson's progress of saying, okay, a double specialist is no longer enough to beat me. Yeah, and this was a dominant win, 6-3, Sloppy tennis, but dominant. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about how we think Feliciano is a doubles player, and he's definitely more of a doubles player than he is a singles player, although he has been, like you said, in the top 30 for quite some time, but... If you look at the stats, they are pretty shocking. Donaldson won 100% of his first I serves. know. I highlighted that, that statistic on the outline. That's insane. 100%. Have you ever seen that? I don't. I, what is this? Pod uh, number 22, 23? Yeah. I've never seen that. Nope, never. I mean, that's pretty wild. If you look at Feliciano's second serve points won, 38%. I mean, clearly when he's not making his first serve, Donaldson's just winning all these ground stroke points. Well, you, like Dalton, need to work on your transitions because the point I would have made was Donaldson wins 86% of his second serve points as well. Again, the guy loses two points on serve. We said Escobedo, you know, we gave him props for hey, losing 15. Hey, both Dalton and I are better looking than me, so <laughs> go fuck yourself. It's a ginger thing. but <laughs> He's not ginger. Whether Dalton is ginger or not is a debate for another podcast. Fair enough. In terms of breakpoint opportunities, you know, you only win two points on serve. You're not going to get any breakpoint chances in terms of Lopez. For Donaldson, he wins four or five breakpoint chances just inside of these Lopez games. He kind of figured out the lefty serve. And again, these highlights were sloppy because a lot of it is just Donaldson hitting first ball, you know, out wide into the outer thirds of the court and Lopez just not really being able to move well enough to do any damage back. In terms of Donaldson, he reminds me of Zach Gross, a former U of M <laughs> club tennis player in terms of I would never... Honestly, that's fair. <laughs> because I would never want to hit with either of them recreationally. Both guys just take huge cuts at the ball. They're trying to rip winners, which credit to them because they can, but it's just not... You know, we talk about this match being ugly. I think that's a product of when Donaldson plays his game, you're not going to get many chances to attack. Yeah, can confirm playing with Gross recreationally is... Not ideal. Also, you guys cannot see this behind, but you're telling me to speed up my take while you're just throwing a ball in the air. Just cut me off if you have something to say. Hey, man, I just want to talk about the semifinals. There's <laughs> some good matches there. I mean, that's that's a fair point. But before we do that, I want to do one of our favorite gimmicks on this show. Fligner, cue the game show sound effect. It's time for Alex's trivia. Jeez, that was a... Terrible. I thought I'd try a new voice. What do you think? Not a fan. Alex's trivia. I wish you guys could see his face. <laughs> He's like kind of giddy as he's saying it too. He loves it himself. I used to watch a lot of The Price is Right when I was younger. So just ah, to be is. that voice in the background would be very entertaining. But I have asked you this Alex trivia question before. Us being a next-gen pod, I want to really reinforce this into our listeners' head. This gives you a perspective of how good these young Americans have been and you know how much we will be able to look forward to them in the next five years. And I swear to God, if you throw that ball again, I'm going to smack it. I've got ADD, my man. <laughs> Nothing you can do. Uh, who can relate? All right. <laughs> Me. <laughs> okay. My question for you. Five American players born after 1995 have made an ATP semifinal. Fritz, Opelka... Tiafo, Donaldson, and Escobedo. <laughs> 
our shortest Alex's trivia segment ever. You're absolutely right. Those are the five. You know, those are just some of the names to look out for. Obviously, Kozlov, Mo, both quarterfinalists. Eubanks, also quarterfinalists. Is this Donaldson's Ocala. second one now? This is Donaldson. No, I think this is his first, right? Is it his first? I think so. It could, no, I think it is his first. But okay. I just asked that question earlier because Acapulco had already happened. Right. But... I want to talk about the other notable results, then we'll get back into the matches and talk about these semifinals. I appreciate you bringing it back up. we got to drill this into our listeners' heads. But some other notable results before we get into the semifinals. we got Kay Anderson taking down Chung. Honestly surprised. Kay Anderson? Is know. that what we're calling him? Kevy, Kevy boy. <laughs> Kevin Love. Kevin Love Anderson. Anyways, he took down Hyun Chung 7-6-6-4, a result I didn't expect to see. Again, this is one of these weird up-and-down moments for a player where he where Chung dominated the run before, then takes on Kevin Anderson and has a tight match. I mean, I think Anderson right now just does everything a little bit better than Escobedo does. The big serve, the big ground strokes, just attacking Chung, and he right. wasn't really able to do anything on the return. So to go from a lesser version of himself and destroy to him makes sense. Delpo took down TM 2-6. and six. I think we just ran, team ran out of legs, and we talked about this earlier, but yeah. I don't like his scheduling. Just too many matches. Yep. And then uh, Zverev taking down Ryan Harrison 4-1. and one. Again, Harrison hasn't made the leap. He couldn't. I mean, this is a clear example. The 4-1 and one result is not showing that he's made progress. Yeah, you got to do better than that. Two competitive sets. That's a leap. That's and, a leap. Credit to Zverev, though, for playing very well. Okay, let's get into our semifinal matches. Jared Donaldson, of course, our fifth American semifinalist, born after 1995, ends up losing his match with Kevin Anderson. Anderson wins that 6-3, 4-6, 6-3. I thought this was a really good showing from Donaldson. You know, you think about him and how many times have I said it, the lateral movement. I'm not a fan. I just don't think Donaldson does a good job of getting side to side, particularly on the stop and goes. You know, he plants his foot and his cut, you know, the swing that he takes at the ball is so big that it takes him a little bit to recover and explode back to the baseline. But credit to him for putting pressure on Anderson, a guy who takes big swings at the ball. I agree. And, you know, we've talked about wanting to see him have good results against some of the bigger hitters. And this is a pretty good result against a guy who hits the ball, obviously, very hard. I think there were chances that Donaldson had throughout the match that he didn't take advantage of. He had six breakpoint opportunities. He converted two, which is a good showing. But there were just a few things that hurt him. A really low first serve percentage, 45%. He was able to convert 67% of those, but still, a 45% first serve percentage is not going to cut it against a big guy like Kevin Anderson. I'm sorry to do this, but quick tangent. Kevin Anderson, Alex Vera, similar players. Jared Donaldson, Ryan Harrison, not similar players. You know, Harrison loses in straights. Donaldson takes a set here. If Donaldson plays Harrison tomorrow, straight up on hard court, straight sets, Donaldson win. Score four and four. Four and four. You really are that much more confident in Donaldson's game. Right Absolutely. Now. Can you explain that to me? Is it the weapons? Yeah. Again, I also just think that there's this. You know what? I don't even know if I could predict a score because of how up and down Harrison is. I was going to say how up and down Donaldson is. Yeah, but I think... Mm, right? It would They're be, both up and down. It would be an interesting match. 
I, I'm getting excited at the hypothetical. Based on this tournament, I would give Donaldson the 4-4 four and four win. Sure. I think Harrison's much more athletic, so his ability to hang with a big hitter, still grind in points, kind of absorb their pace. He does a better job of that, but you know Donaldson's ability to play first strike tennis is very impressive. And you look in this match, sure, he only makes 45% of his first serves, and that's ultimately why he came up short. But he did convert 67% of those first serve points. He won over 50% of his second serve points. Points. You know, yes, Anderson had 10 break opportunities, but this was a three-set match. Obviously, Donaldson did a good job hanging around. I also thought Donaldson did a really good job stepping in on serves and taking returns early. Absolutely. Much better than I'd seen him do before. 100%. And I think that is what kept him in this match, along with just playing really solid ground stroke tennis. For me, the issue still with Donaldson is the intangibles. The second you get him stretched... There was one yeah. example of a point where he hit an, an incredibly aggressive return and you know pushed Anderson behind the baseline. So Anderson came up with a little short, loopy ball, and he couldn't move his feet there to hit a topspin shot. So he had to hit a slice, and his slice isn't good. And so the second he hit a slice, Anderson's back on offense and wins the point. And just it's the little things like that, the little footwork that while Donaldson, you're right, I'd probably take him as the favorite over Ryan Harrison just because of those weapons. If he wants to be elite, if he wants to be in the category of the Zverev, the Choriches, the Chungs, I don't know, the first serve percentage has to be higher than, you know, 45%. I think the other problem is just he wasn't willing to move in. And against a guy like Anderson... But that's a product of him just not having that good of hands yet. And right, so like... Against Anderson, if a ball's coming at you with that much pace and you're not a good volleyer, you're kind of... Yeah, and like we were saying, this is an argument we've had is whether you can actually develop hands over time. I know. It's I, hard. Right? We're not elite athletes. So, oh, you consider yourself an elite athlete. I but am. Just, <laughs> yeah, developing hands is a difficult... You know, it's not something... You don't just feel the drop shot suddenly. No, that's... An, you know what? This is back to our point on college tennis. Could have been beneficial. Yeah. How many times did I see Anderson hit stretch passing shots where Donaldson just kind of floated like a drop volley back? So I, I like the play. You know, to get better, he's going to have to keep moving forward. He is not a good volleyer yet. Still, really impressive run from Jared Donaldson. You know, he's leaped solidly into the ATP top 60. He's a guy who's going to get into the Grand Slams for the rest of the year. Really good result from him. What do you think? Absolutely. And I hope that, you know, he can take this confidence, move it on into the clay court season. Not sure how he's going to do in the clay, but, you know, hopefully he can kind of figure out that lack of movement and, and work on that first shot tennis that he has improved on that first shot tennis yeah the first shot tennis i like it okay let's talk about our other semifinal. juan martin del potro takes out alex virev six four six two this match was a really good first set and then really bad second set so we'll be able to blow throw this quickly but to me honestly this match wasn't fantastic i, I think I'm this, so happy you said that. This was just a, an example of Delpo hitting huge shots. Varev really just not doing much in this match. I mean, you look at the second serve points one on Zverev, 35%. Delpo was just attacking. And this was an example of a match that I know you, I think, have typically disliked, which is when these huge guys like Delpo, Isner, Opelka play some of their biggest tennis. It's not always the most fun to watch. They hit Bombs of forehands and just points are point, short. Yeah, I just made that point about Donaldson. I will say, so here's my hot take question for you from this match. 
given how frequently we've seen Juan Martín del Potro play these last few weeks, you know, he wins Indian Wells, wins Acapulco, plays Tiafo in a match you and I had to watch in Delray. Do you find Juan Martín del Potro to be a er, sorry? Do you find Juan Martín del Potro's matches to be boring? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How repetitive. Backhand slice. Backhand slice. Oh, wow. He. I'm on defense. Let me hit it to the Del Potro backhand because he's going to hit a backhand slice. No, but see, I, I, the thing that I think is more interesting about him is that people try and drop shot him a lot. And they try and bring him forward, I think, more than some of the other big guys. Ooh. And maybe not more than some of the other big guys, but he's way faster than a lot of the other big guys. He gets to those balls, and he has better hands than a lot of the big guys. His backhand volley has become very good. Fantastic. And so I think in that sense, his tennis is a little more exciting than the Isners and the Opelkas and, and those kind of players. Where I disagree with you is when you watch a Del Potro match, anytime he plays someone who is a quality mover, a Zverev, a Tiafo, you know, anytime he gets them in trouble, their bailout move is I'm going to hit a topspin shot to the forehand. And I'm sure. just going to reset the – or sorry, I'm going to hit a topspin shot to the backhand. I'm just going to set the point back at neutral. And Del Potro is perfectly comfortable playing the backhand slice game. And when he can lull you to sleep and make you hit a backhand slice back and then he can hop around it and go inside out, inside in, forehand, point over – like, yes, that's how he he beats players. He lulls them to see to sleep. He lulls them to sleep, and you're right. There is something about that that's beautiful. You know, watching his tennis mind at work, but it's very repetitive. And I think Zverev in this match just kind of fell asleep at the wheel. He wasn't willing to suffer through those long points to grind to the Delpo backhand until he got a sitter. Yep, couldn't agree more. And it's pretty apparent based on these stats and based on the score. I mean, you look at Delpo. He had seven breakpoint opportunities. Definitely took advantage of Zverev's second serve. Pretty classic match for him. And I, you may have mentioned this already, but Zverev in this match only wins 35% of his second serve I points. Just... It's a testament to... De- yeah, I get that you literally just said that. <laughs> but it's a testament to Del Potro's ability to step around the ball, really step into the forehand, and just his ability to look to take control of the points, and when he does, to execute that. It's phenomenal. The guy is still just a magician. I couldn't agree more, and I think he was able to take this momentum into the finals because, you know, he steamrolled Kevin Anderson, too. Even though it was a 6-4, 6-4 win, we really did see Delpo just taking control of this match. Similar statistics to the match with Zverev. Had, you know, relatively good first serve percentage, relatively good first serve points won, but if you look at Anderson's second serve points won, he only had 42%. That's uh, It's the same kind of statistic that he had against Zverev, and I think... If you look at the type of player that Kevin Anderson is and Zverev, they're both tall, have big serves, have big forehands. It looks like he carried that exact game plan into the round, into the match with Kevin Anderson. Well, what's interesting to me is I think Zverev has a better backhand than Anderson. Oh, he, def- he definitely would have matched up better with Del Potro. And you know, Zverev did have a little knee issue in the second set, so you know he threw a racket at the end of the first, though. So take with it what you will. Like uh, he, on a kind of a weird point, it was five four thirty all, and then he three. Like, what are you doing, man? Zero's got other issues that we can talk about later on. But just in terms of this matchup, you're right. You know, Delpo is the type of player who, once he gets his break, he's not going to try as hard on the return games. He's just going to really focus in on his serve. 
And in this match, you know, there are a lot of boring times, a lot of Del Potro aces. He served very well. And I just don't think Anderson did a good enough job of being patient on the back end. Too often he'd be comfortable hitting a slice once Del Potro got the point to neutral. And when Anderson had a lot of success, he was moving forward and pressuring Del Potro and forcing Del Potro to hit some shots on the run. And to Del Potro's credit, he was hitting through the backhand better than I'd seen him do in a while. And he really was successful, as you mentioned, in this match. But... You know, Anderson's Virov, both guys who, had they been a little bit more patient, they could have taken these matches. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Although I want to give credit to Delpo. He's playing. Yeah, I apologize. That's really, not to take away from him. Really high quality tennis. And also want to just congratulate him on having an ATP tour win. I know it's been quite some time. He. I know it's been quite some time since he's felt like he's been kind of on top of his game after injuries. Uh, I love to see him back in, in the swing of things and taking himself far into these tournaments. You and I are fortunate because we're recording this podcast after these events have finished, but you're looking back, and yes, Del Potro is able to win Indian Wells, but Zverev ends up losing first round the next week. You know, Anderson, I think, makes the quarterfinals, so not too bad. But you have mixed results, and I'm just—I want to know your feelings. Do you think it was a wise decision for these guys to play an event a week before you have two Masters back to back? I think that's a tough question. Personally, I'm the kind of athlete and player that wants to have as many reps, and I think these guys are in such good shape that it really shouldn't matter. Even with Delpo's wrist injuries, I mean, obviously it held up, but I'm just saying it's a lot of wear early on in the year. That's fair, but further proves my point as far as wanting to get in those reps and have as much momentum moving into the season as possible. It is early in the year, and I, if I were a player, I want to get all those matches in. I want potentially three wins under my belt. Obviously, Delpo didn't get the third win in Miami, but I think the fact that he's had this momentum and has had the success is going to give him a lot of confidence moving into the clay court season. Same thing with Anderson, you know, wins New York Open, ends up making the finals of Acapulco. He's riding a wave, and I agree. When you're on a roll like that, you got to keep playing. With Zverev, it's interesting. I agree. It's up to you and your training staff. If you're prepared for this, you know, five weeks straight of tennis, credit to you guys for putting in a hard off season. It really is going to be interesting to watch these guys moving forward. Should their bodies break down, playing so many tournaments successively early in the year could be a reason to look back on that. But okay, Acapulco, heck of an event. You know, part one of our three-part podcast has completed. We will get back to you with, of course, our breakdown of Indian Wells. But before we do that, our first real advertisement. So we will be right back. Enjoy. Alex, I'll be honest, I haven't said it to you much, but I really don't like your fashion off the court. What, do you think I wear too many tennis clothes? It's not that you wear too much tennis clothing, it's just you're not wearing the right type of tennis clothing. What do you mean? There's a specific brand I should be wearing? You're absolutely right, Alex. You clearly haven't heard of the new tennis clothes company called Cross Court Threads. Cross Court Threads, is that going to be something with knitting? No, not exactly, although they do use high quality material. In fact, they have some pretty unbelievable designs on their website. You know, I'm a long sleeve guy, do they have anything for me? Well, let me tell you, they've got an awesome Rebel Legend tee with the 
all famous Andre Agassi on it, rocking the nice lechuga out the back. Lechuga, oh my god! Let me tell you, he's got some beautiful flow. But look, (laughs) if you're more of a hat guy, they've also got a nice 40 love hat with some beautiful cursive. But they also have a love all hat for those who are more of that kind of peacemaking kind of vibe. Oh, absolutely. What about for the truckers out there? Any trucker hats? Oh yeah, they've got a trucker hat, a beautiful logo trucker hat with the cross threads logo on it. And you know, I keep it low key, but sometimes I wear leggings on the courts. Anything for me? They've got some racer leggings that look perfect for that nice round butt of yours. Goes up to XXL? (laughs) That it does. (laughs) But you know what else they've got, Alex? What's that? They've got a preferred player program. Ooh, preferred? Yeah. Now let me tell you, if you like the designs on the website, if you are also a current and active member of the USTA, you can apply to become a cross-court threads preferred player. And you know what comes with it? I don't. What is it? Qualifying applicants will receive the opportunity to custom build these awesome designs into a custom package of four items, and they'll come at a steep 25% discount. Well, you know, Maxie, while my USTA player number may still be active, I'm not exactly the most frequent tennis court appearer, um, you know, ever since we won that club tennis national title. Shout out to the squad. I consider myself more in the retired phase, more analyst than player. Also, as you can see right now, I've still got the face for the game. So if there is a way for me to be an Instagram ambassador for cross-court threads, you know, maybe flaunt the gear I'm wearing, not necessarily pick the designs. Is there a program for me to do that? That there is, Alex. You can be a brand ambassador in the brand ambassador program. Look, it's a four-month program, and you seem like the perfect candidate as someone who's a frequent wearer of tennis clothes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like the program for me. Where can I apply? You can apply right on their website, crosscourtthreads.com. And check this out. If you subscribe to their email list, you'll get 10% off. It's crosscourtthreads.com? That it is, crosscourtthreads.com. Crosscourtthreads.com. You know what, Alex? I liked this bit the first time, but let's just leave it <laughs> to the one time. I, I will crosscourtthreads.com. Make sure no dash in between cross and court. It's one word, crosscourt. Crosscourtthreads.com. You know where to find us. I know what you're getting me for my birthday. Oh, yeah? What is that? Crosscourtthreads.com. Great shot production.